Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Well, I've always been a uh, big fan of Indiana Jones. My humble opinion, Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Last Crusade are two of the greatest movies of all time. And I think that the key ingredients of those movies, apart from the rugged charm of Harrison Ford, uh, firstly, a biblically-themed archaeological discovery. Secondly, power-hungry Nazis. And then thirdly, an uncontrollable supernatural power. Uh, And I didn't put the pictures up for that one because it's just too scary for you guys. Uh, And so years ago, well before the flop that was the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I decided the next best Indiana Jones plot would have to be centred on the Tree of Life in the Garden of Eden. I mean, think about this. It it works so well. Uh, It's a tree that lets you live forever. The Nazis, they want it bad. Uh, It's a lost location, so it demands a hero of archaeology to find it. And of course, it's guarded by a formidable supernatural cherubim and a flashing, flaming sword going back and forth. I mean, this is epic stuff. So I might uh, get your signatures on that at some point. I've yet to write to Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, uh, but I'll put it off for like 20 or so years, so I'm sure it can wait a few more weeks. But we are back in the Garden of Eden this morning, and we will be talking about the Tree of Life shortly when we talk about obedience in the garden. But before we do that, we're going to talk firstly about worship in the garden and how it was a place of worship. Last week we considered 
the garden as a place of work in, in cultivation and a place of rest. It was idyllic and peaceful for resting. Uh, and they are two of what we call the creation ordinances. Uh, that is decrees given by God in, in the very natural order of things. Uh, next week we're going to look at some more in marriage and family um, uh, but it's, it's fitting that today, right in the middle, we consider worship and obedience because they really define them all. And so the garden is a place of worship. It's a place of worship, a place where the creatures and the creation live in praise of their creator, where their very existence is for the glory of God. And it's why Psalm 148 can talk about the praise of you know, objects as well as creatures. It talks about angels and stars and animals and, and, uh, and weather even and mountains and, and trees and people, all of them worshipping God. Or as Psalm 150 says, let everything that has breath, not just human beings, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. May every breath... Be for God's glory. Or as we often sing, God, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you, to you only. Every breath, every movement, every moment in our lives, every day is for the worship of God. Completely. And as we come back a little later on to the Sabbath, we need to remember this reality. Worship is the whole week. It is all of life. It is in everything that we do. We, we worship God in our work. We worship Him in our rest. We worship Him in our play. We worship Him in our relationships, in everything. And this is evident in the garden through the very presence of God. Worship is about fellowship with Him, relationship with Him. And so in the garden, he would walk and talk with Adam and Eve frequently. They would commune with him on a regular basis, almost you know, without ceasing, without hindrance. They could just be with God. It's the kind of thing that Israel would do through the temple or the tabernacle, uh, through the priests and the sacrificial system. But Adam and Eve could do it directly. There was no sort of rules about it. They could just be with God. In fact, the garden, or, or really creation in general, was the original temple. That's what it was. And that's why we find that the tabernacle was decorated with garden-type things. You know, it had palm trees and lilies and almond blossoms, all of it sort of pointing back to the fellowship of the garden. It's why there were bowls of water for purification. It's why Jesus, the living temple, says, you know, come to me and drink living water. And why we, who are the temples of the Holy Spirit, can have streams of living water flowing from us. It, it, it echoes, it reflects the water in the garden, the river of life. It's why the temple was liberally covered in gold and other precious stones, which were found in the garden to display God's rich blessings. And it's why there were cherubim in the temple and over the ark, in the tabernacle, just like those that were set to guard the tree of life after the fall. The garden was the original place of, of God's worship. And it is, after the fall, what he is seeking to restore to us. 
And so we get this beautiful picture in Revelation of what it's going to be one day. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What a glorious picture, right? Worship is God's presence. Worship is fellowship. Worship is life itself in relationship with Him. And while we look forward to this this perfection that is to come, we have it today in Jesus, in what He has restored to us and redeemed in us. We have it in His Spirit within us, inside us. We have it in His resurrection life that is coursing through our veins. We have it in the truth of His gospel. As Jesus says, we worship Him in spirit and in truth. And if you don't have these blessings, by the way, you can simply by believing. They are God's to give freely. But the garden is also a place of obedience. Before sin, it was a place of obedience. Right at its center are the two famous trees. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life granting ongoing life to those who would eat it and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil granting a godlike knowledge and frankly a knowledge which man cannot handle. And they're there at the center, these trees, because that is God's place to put them. At the center, because He is the center of the garden of worship. And that is symbolic. And so when man tries to grasp that knowledge and take it for himself, he's trying to take God's place. He's trying to become the center of his world, the center of his worship. He's putting himself before the maker. And it's too much. It kills him. This is what God makes so clear in his very first commandment. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You know, this is the the first thing that God says in chapter 2 of Genesis. It's the first thing he says after speaking uh, into existence mankind. And it's the first thing that he says directly to the man. And what is it? It's a rule. It's a guideline. It is a boundary that he gives. Because worship and obedience go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. If the creature loves the creator, he or she will obey None of us can worship God if we do not do as He says. 
And when we disobey him, we're not worshipping him. We are worshipping ourselves instead. But these boundaries are not like the bars of a cage, if that's what you're thinking. Ah, so restrictive, typical religion. No, God's given us freedom. He made us in his image. We're not animals or robots. In his image, we have free will. We have the ability to choose. He gave us that. And the garden was a place of wonderful options. It was, there was a plethora of trees to eat from, so much goodness to enjoy, all sorts of work and rest to find fulfillment in, great freedom to thrive and flourish under. But it comes with boundaries. Because freedom without boundaries is not freedom, it's, it's, it's anarchy. It's chaos. And God ordered the chaos. It's a recipe for disaster. And the resulting disaster is usually far more binding and enslaving than, than it is liberating. Do you think that if God hadn't put this tree in the garden, he wouldn't have had to give any boundaries? Would humans have found no other way to push his boundaries or to sin, to rebel? The rule was essential for creatures made by the Creator. And it was a rule of love, a rule of mercy. It was God knowing what's best for us, knowing how gracious boundaries are and giving them to us. And it begins this wonderful, gracious journey of law throughout Scripture. It's not a negative thing. It is a positive thing. Law which was to help define freedom, not to sort of act as a cage. The law, which was always a privilege for Israel. And I often said that, we're so privileged to have the law, to have this mercy from a God who would help us know how to live. Help us to, 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 to keep away from death and destruction. And even now, after Jesus, who Paul says is the new Adam, who obeys where we disobey. Even after he has fulfilled the law, and by the way, it wasn't a coincidence that Jesus' moment of greatest obedience was in a garden, in Gethsemane. And everything came down to that. Where Adam chose in the garden to sin, Jesus chose to obey and save the world. But even now, in light of Christ, the law shows us our weakness, it shows us his grace in what Christ has done and it shows us what's good for us. It shows us what's best for us. Ultimately, it shows us how to worship God, how to live lives of worship to God. And that brings us back today to the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest, which is about obedience and worship. A guiding principle on how to worship God. Him knowing what's best for us. All of the Ten Commandments point back to creation in different ways. You know, do not make for yourselves an image of God. He's already done that. Uh, honor your father and mother. That's what we'll talk about next week. But the Sabbath law is the only one that directly quotes from the creation account. This is it from uh, Exodus chapter 20. 
remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. God makes it holy, we keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor your foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And it's one of the few laws that Jesus specifically highlights because of the abuses that were being done to it. In just a few words, in Mark chapter 2, he reveals its relevance, its principle, and his authority over it. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And by the way, it's the authority and the lordship of Jesus that has moved our Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, from the last day to the first day of the week. Because that's the day of his resurrection. And it's always been a day for looking back, the last day of the week, to look back to when heaven was a place on earth and when fellowship with God was unhindered. That's what the garden was, was about and that was the reminder of the temple. But it's also the reality in Jesus Christ who brought heaven down to earth and who restores our fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. That's what he's achieved for us on the cross. And so it's the reality also that we look forward to in Jesus when he comes back and when heaven comes down to earth permanently through the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven and worship and fellowship are restored to perfection. And so our Sabbath day is not one of mourning or or just looking back. It's one of joy and hope and looking forward. It's celebrating what Jesus has achieved when he rose from the grave and he conquered sin and he set us free. But far from abolishing the Sabbath, he has fulfilled it in every possible way. He is the Sabbath. Not to mention uh, the principle of the first fruits in the Old Testament is relevant here. Uh, We give God our first, not our leftovers. And that includes the first day of the week. Often we think of it like, you know, it's the end of a busy week and we, we can kind of bludge out a little bit. But that's not the idea. The idea is God's refreshment and God's equipping for the week to come. And this is also the purpose of the Sunday worship service that we are refreshed and we are equipped for the week to come in the gospel. Worshipping in God and and fellowshipping with Him together. Serving each other and helping each other grow. Singing together to, to glorify God and to encourage each other with those wonderful truths. This is not, in, in this time that we have, this is not just a historical tradition. This is not just some dated institution. This here is timeless Sabbath worship that harkens back to creation. This is the garden echoed as we gather together. This is the temple applied to us. This is the new Jerusalem tasted. 
This is about obedience and life and worship. This is about Jesus Christ, who is the center of all things, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the very tree of life. He is the glory of God. He is the reason that we're here. This is about what's best for us. What God has given us in His grace. Thanks to the fall, there's two Sabbath abuses that we can be guilty of. The first is that we can highlight the letter of the law over the principle. And it becomes legalism and traditionalism, like it was for the Pharisees. And that's when the rituals or the routines become more important than the God that we worship. It's when the rules drown out the freedoms and formality drowns out joy. So when we say, no work is allowed, business is forbidden, but we need to be so careful that we are not restricting the business of the kingdom or the gospel. We need to recognize that worship in itself is actually a form of work, a holy work, if you will. That includes the work that's done for the worship service whether it's me giving a message or the musicians or the morning tea or the crash, whatever it is. It includes the stewardship we have as a church, and we do a lot of that on Sunday. It includes budgets and finances. It includes everything. Jesus fights against the legalism and the traditionalism, saying man was not meant or was not made for the Sabbath by highlighting to us the importance or the need for works of mercy and compassion. That's how he challenges the Pharisees. The Sabbath does not limit such work. In fact, the Sabbath often provides a special opportunity for us to do such work. It is a great day to glorify God by serving others. And again, this is what the worship service is about. It's not just for your personal refreshment and growth. It is for loving others and helping them be refreshed and grow. It's for being the church together and learning and leading and loving, doing the work of the church. And sometimes that can be downright hard work. But it's this principle that should get you thinking about your Sunday activities. The old, as an example, the old no shops on Sunday rule gave many of us a bad taste back in the day because it was just a prohibition. You can't do that. God doesn't like it. But the principle that we all need to consider is, is the Sabbath a day where I can free others up from serving me? Yes, it's a day that I can serve others and help others. Is it also a day I can free others up from serving me? And we sort of go, oh yeah, but those people, they don't believe what I believe and they're going to work on Sunday anyway and all this. Look, that might be true. But what we often are doing there is we're coming back to the letter of the law and we keep chipping away at that. How can I sacrifice? How can I free others up? But it doesn't, it's not a day about doing whatever we want. That brings me to the next abuse, is that we ignore it or we neglect it. We put the whole thing in, in the too hard basket because we just, you know, there's so many disagreements out there. 
So maybe the easiest thing is just to sit on the fence and do whatever suits us best. Pretend it's, it's not in the Bible. But this is what I was challenged with over the last couple of weeks. This is a law that's founded at creation, that's written in stone by the finger of God himself, and that is claimed by the Lordship of Jesus. Whatever we do with it, we cannot ignore it. We cannot just say, oh, the Sabbath, that doesn't apply anymore, that doesn't matter. The Bible says to us, remember it, observe it, keep it holy. See, God made the seventh day holy before the fall. And so that means he's not saying the seventh day is good and all the other days are evil. Well, look, look what's become of this horrible week. Let's set aside one good day. That's often the way that we define holiness in contrast to sin. But that wasn't what he was doing. He was making it a special day in the week, a a different day, a set-apart day, a special day for rest, a special day for worship and fellowship, a special day for holy activities so that we can dwell and rest in God's Word, so that we can dwell and rest in prayer, so that we can dwell and rest in singing and fellowship and gratitude and enjoyment and all that he's given us for the honour of his name. And nothing in scripture changes this. There is no verse that says that doesn't matter anymore. Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man. That doesn't mean man can just do whatever he wants. That means that he is helping us, God is helping us rest and worship and grow in him together. He's given it to us for that purpose. It helps us learn Jesus. It equips us to lead people to Jesus. It it urges us to love each other like Jesus. He who is the Lord and the center and the focus of the Sabbath. And so I hope that you can see that Sunday as a Sabbath day and the worship service itself cannot be separated. We can't say, I'll pull them apart and you know Sunday I can just give to God in a different way. This is what he's provided us. We cannot make this an intermittent once in a while, you know, when I feel like it, consumerist kind of thing. And yes, we're all a bit selfish and sometimes our selfishness expresses itself that way. But if that's the case, we cannot be content with that. God says this is best for us. Do we dare... Tell him he's wrong. I like what you say, God, but actually I prefer to do this or I prefer to ignore that. Well, my week's been like this, so. If this time is about loving God and loving others, how can we choose to miss that? How can we choose to miss that? How could other things, unless they're essential, and there are essential things, how could other things, whether it's jobs or sport or home socialising or whatever it is, how could they possibly be more important? This is the Sabbath, the Sunday, the worship service in its purpose. You've likely read this passage before and you'll likely read it again. But here it is for us. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus, our Lord, our Saviour, and this affects all of our lives, this is not just about Sunday. Since we've got this joy and this grace, let us together draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us together hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And how do we do all this? Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. And if we're not doing this together, or if this is not what we're leading as a a council, then come and tell us about that. Whatever we do, let's not bail. So what do you need to do to align with this guidance? Which Sabbath abuse are you guilty of? Maybe it's that you're here every single time but you treat it, treat it religiously. Or maybe it's just you're not here very often and that needs to change. We're going to have some time now for personal prayer and confession and just to ask that God will give us a right heart for worship and obedience. And then I'm going to close. I'm going to close the service and we're going to sing after that as well. Let's just pray. Father God, uh, we just want to confess our disobedience, where it has won out in our lives. Not just in regards to the Sabbath, but your whole law and the guidance you've given for us. We confess that we try to knock you out of your place and take it for ourselves and determine ourselves what's best for us. Live by our own code rather than your law. And we just ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you'll forgive us for the times where we think we know better, where we've refused to rest, where we've refused to worship, where we've refused to be holy as you are holy, as Jesus makes us holy. 
And Father, we just thank you for the gift of your law of, of boundaries and the gift of a relationship with you and worship for you. We pray that we might live for you in everything, every day. And that we might find a balance where Sunday can be a special day. Where we give to you and to your church. Where we're about the gospel and the kingdom. Even more so than on other days. Free us up, Lord, for it is, as Paul says, for freedom that you have set us free by Christ. We're not here to carry a weight of burden, of guilt. We're not here for prohibitions and rules for the sake of them. We're here to worship you, to give thanks to you and to do it the way that you have given us. We pray, Lord, that you will receive the glory and that we can worship you all the time. Amen.